So that, that was uh, Do the Right Thing, one of three movies we're talking about in this recording <laughs> session. Three, the, the triple feature racist, uh, triple racist movie feature. Our, our second film, I don't think is so much about racism as it is the general prejudices of society and the ills of modern living. So our second film is Code Unknown, which is a Michael, Michael Haneke film from the year 2000, I believe. That's a guess. I recommended this to Chandler. I thought it would be a good pairing with Ali, Fear Eats the Soul, which is our BFI film of the week. These two are films about prejudice in a European context, which I think is a very different and also a very interesting conversation to have. And it likewise, is. Michael Haneke finds that topic very interesting as you know, people who have seen uh, Cachet or The White Cachet. Ribbon or this film will know that he is interested in the ills of society and why kind of like digging into why these things happen. And there's a lot going on here. I have seen it. And I think Chandler has a general idea of what I think of the film, but I'm very curious as to what Chandler thought. You what know, is your experience with Michael Haneke and your reaction to this film? I think Michael Haneke, 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 Haneke is a very interesting man. Yes. He is very interesting. The, uh, the only two movies I've seen from him were Cachet, you lent it to me. Mm -hmm. And when I saw it, I was bored to tears, but I've been very interested in it since then. I've also seen Funny Games, the original Austrian or German version. I own it, um, which is an amazing movie. And I've seen this one. And uh, I mean, this is just as good as the other two. I can't really decide on our favorite right now. Huh. I like this one a lot. Oh, good. It is. It, it's um, his style is very interesting. He is like, I'm sorry to say this, but I the only way I can relate like what his style is like is there's this general idea of German austerity of german uh seriousness yeah and his style is just that kind of serious business-like german uh, approach manifested in film and there's more to it's, it but that's like the feeling that you get yeah because he's very formalistic he has strict rules that are beyond the normal scope of of film that he's kind of operating on a different playing field kind of like ozu mm -hmm. is and, and he's one of those directors that has its own his own thing and just goes with it he is very mechanical yeah there is no crazy camera movements he doesn't even like using any sort of musical cues in his movies which is interesting to this film because this is one of his more musical films yes it is it's so weird because it feels so real it's almost like he's doing a little planet earth series on humans it's just it's so but it's very complicated. Like one of one of the things that just right off the bat, the, the inciting incident of this movie, um, the movie is about a French kid who uh, humiliates a Romanian home. Well, appears to be a homeless woman in the street and then a young uh, African man uh, berates him for it. And that just causes a whole web of changes in all three of these people's lives um but that scene in particular just how again mechanical it is it's just the cameras on the other side of the street watching all of this happen the whole time and it feels so rehearsed but it, if he i I've, i don't know i don't remember which movie it was 
Um, might have been cachet, but he when he has like a, a set like that, a scene like that with a bunch of different people, he essentially gives specific instructions to just about every person. He knows every person in the frame what they should be doing exactly. I think that speaks to that whole German frame. There are a lot of people. It is a street scene. It is one of the most realistic recreations of just natural life. And that it's not really the opening scene because there's a scene. No, but it's the opening scene to the plot of the film, whatever plot there is. And it is one of my all time favorite because it's it's one shot. And I think we should probably we'll eventually touch on the fact that this film is nothing but one shot scenes. Mm -hmm. But no, that opening scene is I always relate it to the film Crash from 2000 (laughs) Academy or early 2000s. That is kind of like this. It is a kaleidoscope picture of racism and people and a bunch of stories interweaving. Um, But this film does it how it should be done, how it begins in this very, this inciting incident of prejudice and racism and of the inability to communicate. And all these characters fracture and splinter outward into their own journeys, which very rarely cross paths again. I guess my selling point is if you if you didn't like Crash, you might like this film. <laughs> have you seen Crash? I have, yes. I, I, I don't even want to try with Crash. I watched it for a class. Oh, okay. That's fair. Interestingly enough, I the most fascinating part about this movie to me is the structure. Mm-hmm. It's seemingly random, but it really isn't. And the only other movie that I've seen that attempts this sort of structure is that um jim jarmusch movie stranger than paradise which is similar it is a movie where it's nothing but camera in one spot long takes scenes of like three to four minutes and then it ends with black then you go on to the next one Hmm. but this one the way that it's structured so many different scenes they just feel like they end out of nowhere they do (laughs) like mid-sentence yeah (laughs) mid-sentence often like with uh, when we when we meet the the photographer boyfriend before we even meet him, it's like a telephone well, call. It's a photo expose. Yeah, that he has because he's a, he's a war photo- uh, war journalist over in uh, Bosnia in Yugoslavia area, the mm-hmm. Balkans, and he's we're seeing pictures of the war that he's taken there, and on top of that is I think either a phone call or a letter that he wrote to his girlfriend Anne, played by Juliette Binoche. And so these, these things are dissonant. They're not, Yeah. it's not a narration that is meant, that is written for those images. They just happen to be placed over each other. Mm-hmm. You know, structurally, it's like, you know, most movies, what they'll do is they'll have one inciting incident. And then you feel the ripple of that action until a new action is taken. And then more ripples. This movie is one action and you just watch the same ripple go farther and farther and farther. And then there's no real sense of conclusion as to how this all resolves you see one incident and you break off from it and you just keep following all three of these different threads as far as they'll go and i just find that very interesting i'm not going to talk about it yet because it's spoilers but there i think there is a michael anarchy deals with the lack of conclusion in a narrative sense in a very interesting way because i do think the film does have a feeling of conclusion on one level but not a feeling of conclusion on another level and mm-hmm. it, I actually, this, this is a criterion I blind bought. I want it now. 
It looks and nice. I think I got beer on it now. <laughs> uh, it, it was hard. Like it was stuck to the table, the plastic, like, you yeah. know, when like there's water on anyway, it's completely random. I blind blind bought this because just, can you see that? See what? Kind of the cover. Yeah. So the cover is, it's like a, a loop, like cul-de-sac, but it doesn't meet. And I just found that image very interesting. And the fact that it's a bunch of people walking on a street and mm-hmm. it, it's one of the few criterions I bought on cover alone. And I enjoyed cachet so much that I was like, Oh, let's check out another film by this Michael Haneke guy. I, I love this film so much. I don't know why <laughs> this film in particular really makes me consider like my other opinions in cinema and makes me realize how subjective yeah. it all is because I, really I think is. there is a, like a slight deviation in my reality would have caused me to hate this film. Yeah. One iota of difference. If something like I had stepped in the wrong place one day, I think that's how close I am to not finding this film interesting. When I was watching it the whole time, the whole time I was watching it, because I was hooked from pretty much the beginning. And I was just like, why am I so entertained by this? By all definitions, it's boring. It's long unmoving shots i watched julia binoche iron a shirt for like five minutes and i'm just like what is it about this that's working and i still don't know and i I feel that way about all haneke movies except for funny games that one's just overtly this one i think though is which is interesting you and i have different opinions of funny games i don't like it as much as you do i think this is his most easily accessible work of yes which is saying something for a director that seems to actively try to make things that are not accessible. I think it's partially the fact that there is a sense of narrative that you never quite get. Like it's just out of reach. And I don't think this film is boring at all. Like I think it's not boring because you are constantly wanting to figure it out. It's (laughs) we've had many of these films on this, on this podcast where there has been mystery in the very basic narrative itself. And sometimes we complain that we don't care to figure out that mystery. But this is a film that is very, very much care. opaque in a lot of its ideas and a lot of its characters and a lot of basic storytelling elements that aren't explained in any mm-hmm. way. And yet you get the sense that there is something to figure out here or at least to grasp. And that's what keeps you engaged through the end. Uh, oh, I lost my train. Oh, yeah. W- quick, quick um, comment. Would you not consider Amour to be pretty accessible? Oh, poop. I always forget that I've seen a lot of his films. Uh, I haven't seen yeah. that one. I just know that's one that that's like his only one. I need that's... to see it again. I need to see it again. When was the last time you saw it? it was, I, I, I think it was probably sophomore or junior year. Early. Okay. Early junior year. What would you say is your favorite Haneke movie then? Code Unknown. Oh, is it? Okay. Interesting. Yeah, it probably is Cachet, because that's the film that I loved the most when I watched it the first time, but I've only seen it that one time. You've only seen it once? Which is funny, because I own two copies of it. You own two? I know you got one in Amoeba. I have the DVD, and then I figured out there was a Blu-ray, and I got the Blu-ray. There is a Blu-ray? Oh, shit. It's Region B, which... Oh, you do you have a Region B Blu-ray player? My... my usb computer blu-ray player oh yeah that's right can read that yeah he he i'm I'm fascinated by this man he's similar to um terrence malick who 
in, in the sense that Terrence Malick is very much into philosophy and he incorporates his philosophical learnings into his movies. Um, Haneke is, is, from what I know, understand, is very much into psychology and just sociology and how humans act in certain ways. And all of his movies are they're, they're not theatrical in the slightest, but it's that no. complete except for funny games. I didn't say funny games is mm. yeah, in, in a way. The meta elements are something that are far from. Yeah, reality. that's his most cinematic work that he's actually making yes. a film in a genre. He's just very interested in people. And, you know, performance wise, I love Juliette Binoche so much. She's amazing in everything, especially in this movie. No. So you were you were talking about uh, Michael Haneke and Terrence Malick. And I think there's another apt comparison there is that those two are some of the most unique auteurs working today in mm-hmm. that some filmmakers, you get the sense that they are have such a unique voice that all else in the film is like drowned out by that. Terrence Malick is one of those people. I think Michael Haneke is one of them. And there's not that many of them working today. I think that most directors have at least some, some sense of create, creative process among multiple voices in their films. Mm, yeah, I can't think of anyone else. Not I'm sure there's right. at least someone else, but we're going we're gonna to move on to spoilers here okay i've actually counted the number of shots in this film because it's possible to do that quite easily how many do you think there are not counting the the photo exposés i'm gonna say between 25 and 30 interesting it is more than you would expect there are 45 scenes in the film okay and scenes equals shots so it's interesting it is more than you think Mostly because most of the scenes are less than three minutes long. True. They go by pretty quickly, at least in the center of the film. The the Romanian immigrant, her hiding in like that truck or whatever. It's a pretty short one, I guess. Yeah, th- th- there's a few things that kind of confuse me. Um, okay. I'm still not entirely sure why the father of the African father moved back. Did he move to Africa? Th- that is probably one of the more inexplicable elements of the film. Having seen it three or four times myself, I don't think it is particularly obvious as to why he moved back. And I get that's another one of those things where I get the sense that Michael Haneke has a psychoanalytical reason behind it. And there are clues to in the in the scenes that we have with his family, perhaps. But it is so opaque that I think you can only speculate as to why he goes back. I get well. I got the sense that he was just tired of the subjugation his family mm-hmm. was feeling in this in France. You know, because he had obviously his one son got in trouble with the police for standing up for the woman. And then he had his other son who was getting in trouble for being accused of selling weed at school. I, I don't I think he believed his son when he said he didn't do it. So I think at that point he was fed up. But at the same time, I'm like, you're leaving your entire family. So it, it's interesting that the the opening sequence and also the ending sequence that the two times that like genuine um, good intentions, like actions mm-hmm. that are taken upon good intentions, the two times those happen in the very beginning, it's uh, Amadou, Amdou, Amadou, I don't know how to pronounce it. I don't know that. any other names. Um, he berates Jean, 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 French. I hate the French language and pronouncing it. <laughs> uh, anyway, he he berates the young man for 
disrespecting the Romanian beggar. And mm-hmm. that's an act of, of genuine. He's not thinking about himself. He's trying to do something good. He's trying to correct a wrong and he gets punished for it. And the other time that someone does something not for themselves, but for someone else in the film is at the very end when George buys Anne perfume and then he can't give uh-huh. it to her because he is locked out of the apartment. And I just find it very interesting that through most of the film, people are just worried about themselves doing their own thing. And the only two times that people do something for someone else, it just fails miserably. <laughs> My favorite scene in the movie, besides, well, I mean, aside from the opening street scene that you talked about, which is an amazing scene, um, it's one of my favorite scenes just because of how anxious I feel is the scene with um, Julie Binoche on the subway. That's that's another one that's very memorable. It's hard to watch. Mm-hmm. It is. It, it's that that is the scene where I was like, oh, OK, I understand all of this because, you know, it 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 is a movie about prejudice, I think, at, at the heart of it. And that scene, I'm like, OK, I would understand how having to deal with stuff like that all the time, even against her own will, she might develop a mild prejudice. Mm-hmm. Well, you can see it in the beginning when, you know, she's help defending her son from the guy, but you also kind of see it when she sees the same guy in the restaurant later, just the kind of dirty looks she keeps sneaking over towards him. But at that point, I was like, OK, I still I'm not sympathetic to your prejudice, but I understand it now at that point. Yeah. The subway scene, I think, is particularly interesting because there are multiple angles you can approach that scene from and think Mm -hmm. about it from. And one of the things I was reading an article today about how someone, you can look at it as a man versus woman, like the prejudice against women and being sexually harassed. Mm -hmm. Like That's one angle you can come at it from. This article that I read came at it from a very different angle which I found interesting, the perspective of the Arab uh, migrant, the young man who accosts her on the subway, and her being a you know, a white woman of privilege on that subway, and what that kind of dynamic has, uh, what kind of connotations that has, and why that young man might have done that. It's just, it the film, that scene in particular, amongst other things, there are is a lot to interpret in the film, and the film just sparks a lot of engagement from its audience on a yeah. social level, on a social political level. Yeah. And it's it's interesting. It's I think about his movies a lot, so I'm thinking I'm gonna see what else he's got on the Criterion channel. Um, this might also be my favorite. It's they're they're little puzzles. All of his films. Narrative yeah. cinematic puzzles. And this one in particular, the way that it's structured, the each scene is its own shot. They're very, they're, it's so stripped down and simple, and yet not so. I have, a, I approach film in a very kind of analytical, structured manner, and that really appeals to me. That sense of like mm-hmm. trying to piece things together in an organized way, because it's it's organized chaos. You might call that film. It, it the is. film is so incredibly the way. The, the authority that Michael Haneke directs everything is very controlled. He's a very controlling director. You get that sense, but you also get the sense that it feels very natural and very kind of disorderly, the world that he is depicting. Jumping back on your, your comment about this being the most musical, I think it's interesting that whole like four or five minutes that 
you know immediately comes after the just shot of um the young black man in the in the drum meeting mm-hmm. or drum congregation the next like two or three scenes are all you know they have that drum score underneath it which you know compared to the other two that i've seen is the most theatrical thing that's happened but my question is at the end is does it flash back at the end is that what's happening to the 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 deaf children the class yeah oh wait no never mind she returns the the beggar woman yes the romanian yeah marie yes maria mm-hmm. beginning of this film that first uh major scene and this last ending mm-hmm. sequence which is the drums and then three shots afterwards i think it's it's just an amazing end sequence um it has kind of like this kinetic energy that comes out of the the drumming that carries over the rest of the scenes and gives it a weight that might not be there otherwise if that that music wasn't there and i think one of the reasons yeah. why this the ending of this film works because nothing is really resolved it ends with no. one of the one of the more interesting mysteries that i don't think can be solved is that george returns home and he can't get into the apartment is it because he forgot the code also code unknown the last shot of the narrative of the film doesn't know the code get it <laughs> but he doesn't know the code why is it because he forgot is it because uh Anne locked him out he goes to the phone and he calls her is it is she purposely ignoring him or is she too distraught after the incident on the subway to answer the phone and you don't really have any resolution on their relationship whatsoever in fact it it leaves you with more questions than you probably started with with the two of them and I think the reason why that ending sequence works and does give you a sense of finality is that one is that it is, it's a loop. It's an incomplete loop is that you're back where you started Mm -hmm. at the beginning of the film, that, that first shot, same, same set. And I think it's also because you have those drums underneath that kind of the music is a bit of like a punctuation. It gives it like a period at the end when it stops. Mm -hmm. And the fact that everyone is back where they started in a way that gives you a sense of conclusion, but also not so, because they're back in very different ways than, than where they started. Marie, the beggar in particular, I think she has the most emotionally resonant arc over the film. Uh, her as a migrant, I think that's particularly with a lot of the stuff that happened in the early 2010s, I think that particularly particular side of the film got very relevant and is still relevant. Yeah, But yeah, those are my thoughts on the ending. Well, she's, you know, she's definitely has the most progression. Um, you know, the, Julie Binoche's character, you don't really see much as far as the ripple effects of this inciting incident, aside from her boyfriend's brother running away from, oh God, that farm. So that's what I want to know is why did he kill his cows? He burned so, down the barn, okay. did he not? <laughs> oh, I thought goodness. he did. Okay. I always thought he killed the cows, and this time around, I was looking, and like, one of the cows is moving. Did he not kill the cows? Maybe he didn't kill the cows, and then I started looking more, like, maybe I just imagined it. Maybe they're not being killed, and now it's like Schrodinger's cow. Those cows, because he closes the door, could be dead or alive, and I, I don't know. I don't know if it's possible to answer that question. But he looked like he was, was he not starting a match when he closed the doors? I think he was lighting a cigarette. But I don't know because he never lit the cigarette. 
I thought he killed him. I thought he had. Doesn't matter. That's it's an interesting. It's interesting. I thought the same idea for different reasons. Yeah. Well, okay. So here's here's my reasoning: is that he's been training his son, his young son, who you can tell. That's what. That's another thing I love about this movie. You could just from the one scene that Jean and his dad share together. I can already surmise the idea that I think his dad originally tried to throw the farm on him and then he rebelled and said no and became a war photographer instead. So in my mind, it was the father who was training his son, his younger son, to take over the farm. The son ran away, so he thought there was no use for the farm anymore. And he figured if I can't give it to him, I will give it to no one. So that's why I thought he was burning down the barn. Yes. He killed the cows, and it looked like he was going to burn in the barn. Yes, there's like a there's a psychological reason for it. <laughs> I just it, assumed he burned it down. You could assume that, and I I, I don't think there. I was, didn't even see the there. cow that you said looks alive. They all look dead to me. That's what I thought, but then I saw the cow that looked alive, and this is after four. Well, maybe you just fucked I didn't up. Notice it. Um, <laughs> which is you know oh, we're talking about the farmer, which and John John Jean which we haven't talked about discussed yet in this conversation. And I think that's just a, a, a testament to the fact that this film deals with a lot of different interactions. I think the, uh, the, one of the main themes of the film is the inability for people to communicate across barriers. And those barriers can be racial, ethnic, mm-hmm. migrant versus uh, people who live there. It can be, between father and son, generational boundaries, uh, a boundary yep. between lovers, between Juliette Binoche and George, and between there's just a lot of different like moments and different counterpoints of miscommunication between people. You'd think from describing it that it, it takes on too much, that it's dealing with too much. It doesn't. But it doesn't. Yeah. That's the thing is I'm a, I don't know why I like this movie so much, because on paper I would hate it. On paper it shouldn't work. I'm I'm with you there. He's he's a very interesting man. I feel like there's so much I'm missing because I'm constantly just reminded of all these little aspects. But at the same time, like I, I don't know, it's 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 very interesting. It's a film that rewards multiple viewings, because you will see more and you will see less. Okay, I'm surprised you've only seen Cachet once. I'm surprised too. Did you notice, this is the one thing I wanted to ask, so at the very end, uh, when Julia Binoche, her last shot during the drums, mm-hmm. the beggars in the background of that shot. Oh my god, really? Very briefly, and it's, the, it's one of the few times in the film that they, that more than one character from different threads are in the same space together. Well, that's just like the ending of Cachet. Mm-hmm, yes, yeah. It's another cachet moment. <laughs> it means nothing. It's just she's in the background. It's just something you can pick up on a, another viewing. That M- Michael Haneke makes sociological Where's Waldo films. <laughs> it's true. Makes I Spy. That's, that's a pretty good brain. explanation of it. <laughs> pretty good. I like that. I like that. Yeah. All right. Would you recommend it? I would. I would yeah, most certainly sure. recommend Code Unknown. Have you seen um, both versions of Funny Games? I have not. I've only seen the one. The a German one. Correct. Everyone who I talk to likes the American one better. Really? Yeah. Maybe I'll have to watch it. They're apparently yeah. very like shot shot for shot, very similar. 
No, no, he literally remade his film. He shot for shot recreated the movie with American actors. Very few filmmakers remake their own movies. Alfred Hitchcock was one. Um, he made uh, The Man Who Wasn't There. No, not that. He made um, he, he made a film oh, what's... twice. Uh, it was uh, The Man Who Knew Too Much? The Man Who Knew Too Much. Oh. That's it. He made that one twice. Yeah, because there, there's a criterion of it, and it's the original version. So there are filmmakers, and I think they're... There are very few filmmakers who have made their the same film twice, and mm-hmm. Michael Haneke is even amongst that group. He's the only one remade the f- same film and did it almost exactly like he took the same notes, took the same shots. Like let's just do it exactly the same. I'm just gonna do it in a different language this time. Yeah, and that's just that's crazy. Uh, well, you know the reason he did it, right? The reason why he made it. Tell me. Well, the reason, because he constructed it as an American movie, because it very much comments on the um, uh, violence in American movies. And he wanted to make it with American actors, but he was, you know, not very well known at the time, so he couldn't get him. So he made it, which in that movie made him more famous. And when he had the means to actually make it with American actors, he remade it. And he, I guess he thought it was pretty much exactly what he wanted, but the only thing that was missing was the fact that he couldn't get American actors to be in it. It's got Tim Roth and um, Dougie's wife. I forget her name. Oh. It's not Nicole Kidman. Naomi Watts. Yeah, Naomi Watts. <laughs> I think it might be the first time she's ever been referred to as Dougie's wife. <laughs> Jane. No, that's not Jane. Okay. Should we go on to the next movie? Then? Jenny. Jenny E. Yes. All right, well, that was Code Unknown, Michael Haneke. We will return to Haneke in a few weeks for Cache. Cache's on the list? Yeah, it is. Oh, okay. It's one of very few from the 2000s. There will be Blood, Mulholland Drive, In the Mood for Love. I think those are the four. In the Mood for Love. It's just better. I don't know what... It isn't. It is not. It is not. It's just one of the best things ever made, and... How many times is California dreaming in In the Mood for Love? Let me let me say this. I think you could say that Chunking Express is the better film, but I don't think you could say that Chunking Express is one of the best films ever made. I think you, it, like that's I feel like that's a paradox to say, but I think you could you could just say it about In the Mood for Love, but you can't say it about Chunking. Anyway, yeah. <laughs> it's all subjective, man. <laughs> 